Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I am super excited to welcome Anne Choquette to Leave Your Mark today. Anne, it's so lovely to see you. I wish this was in person, but I feel like we have so much to talk about. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm sending you an air hug. I love it. I just caught it right there. Big air hug. So for everyone listening, Anne was named by Forbes as one of the most powerful U.S. fashion magazine editors. Anne Choquette has spent almost her entire career being a champion for women with the mission of helping them step into their power at work, in relationships, and in their lives. Most recently, Anne made a superpower move by starting her media and events company, New Power Media. And she also, bold moves, acquired The List, a global membership network made up of high-impact women, including Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, TED speakers, trailblazing CEOs, and diversity and inclusion thought leaders. And I'm proud to say I am a member of The List. Anne was previously the editor-in-chief of Seventeen Magazine for nearly a decade, where she brought the iconic brand to number one across multiple platforms. Known as a life guru for millennial women, Anne also wrote The Big Life, Embrace the Mess, Work Your Side Hustle, Find a Monumental Relationship, and Become the Badass Babe You Were Meant to Be. It's an it guide for young, ambitious women. As a talented and inspiring speaker, Anne has spoken at major conferences and corporations, including South by Southwest, TEDx, Pennsylvania Women's Conference, and Facebook. And of course, you've appeared regularly on Good Morning America, Today, Oprah, The View, CNN, as well as being a guest judge for four seasons on America's Next Top Model. So the laundry list of Anne's accomplishments just goes on and on. I almost forgot about America's Next Top Model until you said that at the end. And I thought to myself, oh, I did that. I forgot I did that. Every time I do this, people are always like listening to their accomplishments and they're kind of always surprised. And it's like, I didn't make this up. Like, I didn't write this story for you. You all did it. So it's actually a good reminder to like really take that in every once in a while and read over your bio or write your bio and write down what you've accomplished, even small wins. I think it... It's a good mood changer, don't you think? I'm one of those people who obsesses about all the things that I didn't achieve or that I didn't win or, I mean, look, I don't believe in failure, but all the ways in which um, I fell short of my goals, I obsess about those things. And I could probably give you a really long laundry list of all the ways I've screwed up. And so you're right. We need to take a moment and say, I did that. Not, I did that. I did that. Well, this is a perfect segue. So what do you mean you don't believe in failure? This whole mantra that we hear so often, um, fail fast, fail hard, you know, the embrace failure. I do not believe in failure. It feels like you're setting yourself up for failure by even saying it. And instead, I just want us all to accept that sometimes things don't work out, that you learned something from it. Every single time that it's a failure in air quotes, it's a learning experience. Okay, great. That didn't work. What can we do to get to the next step? So all of this sort of zeitgeisty movement to embrace your failure just does not resonate with me. I would much rather that we all think of ourselves as a work in progress. And even when something doesn't go the way we want it to, we are learning something valuable that's going to help us get there the next time. Are you a big goal setter? I'm a big macro goal setter. I like strategy 
And I like setting up a big picture and mapping out the steps to get there. That is where I thrive. That combination of strategy and execution. And then once you have that one foot in front of the other, don't second guess yourself. Don't change the play. I don't know a football metaphor, but don't change the play. That's right. I think that's right. (laughs) So I like a big picture, right? I couldn't, if you asked me to write down, I have a to-do list, but those sort of midterm goal setting that we're all in the midst of now with the new year, right? When we're talking about New Year's resolutions, every year, instead of a New Year's resolution, I choose a word of the year. I do too. You do? Have you chosen yours yet? Yeah, you go first though. Well, I haven't chosen mine yet because this year has been so complicated. <laughs> and even <laughs> yes. and so I need the year to show itself to me a little bit. But to me the word is not what I want to achieve, but it's the thing I need to remember that's going to help me get to my goals. So last year my word was squad. And it's hard to even remember if you can put yourself back to January 2020, but I had just launched New Power Media. And I was undertaking a really big project to establish that company, to set it up, to start doing a lot more live events, and then ha 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 live events. But I knew that I didn't exactly have all of the knowledge and all of the pieces in place, but I knew that my squad did. I needed to remind myself that if there was something I didn't know, that I needed to tap into my network and to my friends and to the people who I'm surrounded by who are devoted to helping me achieve and succeed and who I am devoted to in return. Um, Squad turned out to be a really amazing word for me because when we all had to pivot, when COVID turned our lives inside out and upside down, it was my squad who held my hand. I had Zoom dinners, Zoom cocktails, (laughs) Zoom meetups with my network Some were the network of women who were my colleagues, and some were the network of women who were in the um, Badass Babes, which is the community of young women who sprung from the big life. And just to have those women to talk to, to know that they were going through the same questions and fear and anxiety that I was, turned out to be a lifesaver. So squad really turned out to be such a great word last year. And usually I wear my word of the year on a bracelet and I oh. keep a stack of them. Oh, I was going to ask you if it was fine jewelry or not, but I no, guess no. not if it's a stack. <laughs> no. My bracelets come from myintents.org, I-N-T-E-N-T-S. And you can customize what the bracelet looks like. You can customize the color. Cute. I give them as gifts when people tell me their word. You may very well end up, when you tell me your word, you may end up with a little gift arriving. And I have a stack of them. Some say possible, some say deeper, some say power. And they're the reminders of what I need to bring into my life in order to achieve my goals. What's your word? So I think I'm very atypical in the sense that like, I probably come off as someone who has macro goals, like you say. I would imagine people think that, but I really don't. Like, I don't have a North Star vision necessarily. I'm more of like a fly by the seat of my pants, throw a lot of stuff at the wall and see what sticks kind of girl. So my, um, it's more like a theme than a word. So mine is set your intentions, but I'm doing it daily. So I'm kind of just waking up and saying like, okay, what are my intentions for the day? Whether it's not even work related necessarily. It's like today I'm going to drink, you know, 64 ounces of water or whatever it is. And for me, I like taking it in like small digestible bites because I get overwhelmed if it's like this big macro strategy kind of thing. I mean, that's exactly what we need now more than ever. The world is changing. We need built-in flexibility. You can't plan. I was trying, that's why I haven't chosen my word yet because the word to me is sort of an overarching theme. And I feel unable to make the plans that we need for the next quarter, for the first half, um, because the world is changing so rapidly. And that's actually, when I think about goal setting, you have to leave yourself the flexibility to pivot, to change, to look after new opportunities that when I'm thinking about these big overarching ideas, I'm also thinking about, well, what are the new opportunities? What else is coming up? What else can I try? And not to throw everything out of the window. You know, I still keep the umbrella, but not to be afraid to veer off path, 
to explore mm-hmm. a little. Yeah. So I don't actually know a lot about your background. Like I know your work, but I don't know your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Pennsylvania and Littleton, Colorado. So I was born outside of Philadelphia when I was six until I was 15. I lived in Littleton, Colorado. And then when we moved back to Philadelphia again, but I I talk about those years of living in Colorado that they made me nicer. Those Midwest years softened my East Coast edge. And I hold on to that Midwestern wide open spaces, beautiful mountains in my heart. It was a beautiful place to spend those early elementary and middle school years. And you majored in journalism. I didn't. You didn't? No. I went to NYU. I grew up in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia. And I was desperate to come to New York City. Like that was the goal. NYU was an amazing, amazing school to go to, but I knew that I wanted to be in New York City. At the time, I thought I was going to write novels. And while I think it was a tremendous gift that my parents gave me to send me to NYU, but also to not demand that I figure out how I was going to make money with this very (laughs) expensive degree that they were allowing me to get. I mean, I I really don't know what they were thinking when I said, I'm going to write novels. Um, somewhere in there, maybe it was the hustle of New York, I got ambitious and realized that it wasn't terribly lucrative to try to be a brand new out-of-the-gate novelist living in New York City and that P.S. rent was expensive. P.S., yeah. So I took a couple of magazine journalism classes. I graduated with a degree in English literature and political science, and this terrible mistake I made, which I would like no one listening to make the same mistake. I ended up getting a minor in Latin. What? I know. It's weird. It's cool because I read the Aeneid in Latin, but I should have taken French. I should have taken Spanish. I should have done anything with those credits other than end up getting a minor in Latin. I think your minor in Latin is worse than my major in neurobiology. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. It's the worst. I mean, look, I'm a killer Scrabble player, but I'm sure that I could have figured out how to be great at Scrabble without the degree in Latin. So first job out of college was what? I got a job as an assistant at the American Lawyer Magazine, which was as boring as it sounds. (laughs) But I was so determined to figure out how to pay my rent. And we were just like millennials when they came out of college and they were faced with a terrible recession. When I came out of college, we were also faced with a terrible recession. And so I ended up landing this job a week before graduation, started the day before my graduation, then had to take a pass so that I could go to the ceremony. But what turned out to be an incredibly boring seeming job at a trade magazine for lawyers ended up being an amazing opportunity. It was a media company that was founded by Steve Brill, who is this cigar-chomping, dramatic media character. And he had also just launched Court TV. And two days after my college graduation, when I was sitting in this assistant seat, O.J. Simpson took his fateful ride down the highway. In the white Bronco. In the white Bronco. Now, I think probably half of your audience knows who this is. And the rest of them are like, oh, the Kardashian connection. Like, I recognize. (laughs) (laughs) But this was a big moment. And Court TV had cameras in the courtroom. And so the next couple of years at this media company, I really had a front row seat to how you build a multimedia platform around a single idea. Um, Steve had built, he had a magazine, he had a series of newspapers, he had built an online service for attorneys, and he had a television network. And Mm. it was all about legal and the business of law. And I really felt like those early years of being an assistant and a fact checker was like going to graduate school. I sat in the pit of journalists, literally a pit, not even cubicles. We were just a pit of reporters. And I listened to how everybody else reported and asked questions. And that was the most amazing education. The journalism at The American Lawyer was excellent. So many famous journalists have come through 
the American lawyer ranks. Um, James Stewart was there and Connie Brooke was there. And the woman who went on to be the executive editor of the New York Times and the best reporters worked at the American lawyer. And so I would listen to them and I would try on their reporting style. Someone would be really macho and challenging. And I tried that once in a while and that really didn't work for me. There was another guy who would play dumb with the reporters and I tried that. It didn't really work for me. But what I did find, I sort of started to find my own pattern, which was asking really straightforward questions. I learned not to be afraid to ask those questions. And I found that was such an important lesson as I learned how much I love to ask nosy questions. And that if you ask them really straightforward, people will tell you. And it was a great experience from what seemed like a terribly, terribly boring job. So interesting. And then from there, how did you go to fashion? So from there, I went to a teen news magazine to write about legal issues for teenagers. And it was there that I realized- That's such a good segue. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a teen version of Parade. So it would come in your Sunday supplement. And that was an amazing experience because I realized how much I loved that moment in your life where you're trying to figure out who you're going to become. And they were such a small team that when they said, we need someone who can take on the style department, I raised my hand. I said, great, I will do that. And so I learned a little about style and fashion. I would not by any means say that I knew what I was doing, but I figured it out. And from there, I went to the launch team of Cosmo Girl. And that's where I landed at Hearst, worked like a maniac at Cosmo Girl, slept under the conference table. Actually? Literally slept under the conference table when we were launching that magazine. People would wake me up at three o'clock in the morning to edit copy. And I was like, how is this going to be good editing copy? It was the very early days. We were, I described this moment as basically four 27-year-olds standing around an overheated copy machine trying to put out (laughs) a magazine. Um, But it was also tremendously exciting. Like we were creating a magazine from scratch that had never existed before and talking to young women in a way that they had never been talked to before. And I really started to find my own purpose. People talk about finding their purpose. And I I always think that that's like such a high bar to set Mm -hmm. right off the bat. I mean, look, you got to pay bills. And a lot of times there's no room in those early years for finding your purpose. Get a job, get any job and learn how work works. And that's what I feel like those first, the American lawyer and React, React was the newspaper, were really about for me. And I started to find the thing that really lit me up when I was at Cosmo Girl, which was helping young women step into their power. Really quick story about Cosmo Girl. I led a campaign there called Project 2024, which was the year in which our youngest reader would be eligible to be president of the United States. And when I ran this campaign, 2024 seemed Seems so, so far. far away. But we are sitting here staring down the barrel of 2024. And the idea that one of those young women who were reading those magazine articles could run for president, is leading in the political process, is so exciting to imagine. That's crazy. Also makes me feel like old. (laughs) It makes me, no, it makes (laughs) me feel so excited to know that we planted the seeds, right? That we were there from the very beginning, fanning the flames of ambition of this generation that has turned out to be more ambitious, more laser-focused on career and success, greater possibilities in the world. It almost seemed like a little bit of a joke when we were like, ha, 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 she'll be eligible to be president of the United States. We're going to have a female president. Maybe not 2024, but maybe. Yeah. That's amazing. So then you go on to 17 from there. Yes. It sounds like a straight line, but actually, because I know the audience here is so sort of in the midst of building and growing their career. I want to just take one second, a pause between Cosmo Girl and Seventeen. I was at Cosmo Girl for almost eight years. And I was actually up to be editor-in-chief twice before I finally landed the job at Seventeen. And 
I didn't used to tell that story. I used to say like, oh, it was fantastic. I had all this amazing success at Cosmo Girl. And then I took the helm of a legendary magazine and ran that for the better part of a decade. But it would not have happened if I hadn't have had those two up to bat moments before. The first one was a magazine that I had pitched. It was a process of getting up to get my proposal seen by the head of Hearst Magazine's Kathy Black. And I probably was not ready to run a magazine at that time, but the idea caught fire and got workshopped around and I had a series of meetings and that was a pretty exciting idea mm -hmm. to imagine that I had seen a white space in the market where I felt there needed to be a new magazine and that we got to really talk about that idea for a while. A year later, I got the call to step in to pitch for another editor-in-chief role and I worked really hard on that proposal, but I remember being so nervous on the day that I went to go pitch. And it turned out that there was another editor who was in line ahead of me and who got that job. And I realized then that the nervousness I had also meant it probably wasn't my turn. I probably wasn't ready for that. But the third time that I got up to bat to pitch to be editor-in-chief of 17, I knew the players. I knew how the pitch was supposed to go. I already knew all the ways that it could go wrong. And so I didn't have to worry about that. And if I hadn't have had those two other chances, I never would have been in a position to ace it the third time. And so I tell that story now because a lot of times people get their hopes pinned on one job. And just like I said, I don't see them as failures. I see them as learning experiences that every single step along the way, I learned something new that got me closer to the big job. But some people also would say, okay, well, this didn't work out twice. So I guess I'm not, I'm just not meant to be that, right? So what made you try again? I had confidence in my ability Look, I had to do the work anyway. <laughs> I had to keep moving forward. Just like I said, there were bills to pay. And I also didn't necessarily see being editor-in-chief as the one end-all be-all. It was something that was like, yes, interesting. Yes, worth going for. Yes. But it wasn't the only. I'm interested in a lot of things. I've had all sorts of various pieces of my career. And so I just kept going one step in front of the other, waiting for new opportunities, looking for what's next, looking for what was interesting. I remember when you left, you know, so I left editorial in the late nineties is when I went over to the corporate side and throughout my time on the corporate communication side, there was always that moment of like, should I have left? Should I have left magazines? Like I always had that feeling because also, you know, you're working with editors all day long and you kind of, there's a little bit of that like, oh, it's really nice to be an editor. Um, but <laughs> and then, it is nice to be an editor. It is nice. It is nice to be an editor. But then at a certain point, it became really clear that pivoting was the right move. And I remember when you left, when was your book published in relation to that time? So I left 17 at the end of 2014. And my book came out early 2017. It was actually the very first thing I did after I left 17 was sign a deal with my agent because I knew that I wanted to continue the conversation with the generation of young women who had grown up with me at Cosmo Girl and at 17. And it wasn't so much that I decided to leave magazines. Frankly, I think magazines left me the business model wasn't there anymore. We had been downsizing and doing layoffs and repositioning and repivoting. And I had put, you know, a series of digital first proposals in front of my boss and they just fell on deaf ears at that time. And the magazine industry was in turmoil. And I was pretty clear about what I had to say and the audience that needed to hear it. In fact, when I left 17, I kept looking for somebody else who was going to say it. I kept thinking, well, look, this is an ambitious, hungry generation that is redefining what it means to be powerful and successful in the world. I am sure that there's somebody out there that is doing this programming already. And I didn't find the fit. I didn't find 
the media outlet that was saying what I knew needed to be said. So that's when I decided to write The Big Life. And what is having a big life? Ah, this is a great question. The Big Life is not about money or fame or acquisition. The Big Life is crafting a path on your own terms. That freedom, that domain, that is what, well, frankly, that's what millennial women want, but that's what we all really want is to be able to call the shots, to decide what we want to do, how we're going to do it, and to not have to make sacrifices for the wrong reasons. One of the amazing things that I have learned from millennial women is the way in which they think about their work and their life together, that it's not separate. And particularly when it comes to starting a family and having children, sort of the reigning ethos as I was coming up in the world is that you would put it off as long as you could, right? You would put off having kids as long as you could because you wanted to get a senior in your career as you could. And I did that. Um, But it's on the table from the very beginning with millennial women that they want to be able to have families and to work and to succeed and to continue to rise and to get family leave. And I think that that's amazing, right? That to me is the big life, life on your own terms. I love that. I love that. And Badass Babes is a group, a community, virtual, in person. What is it? So as I was writing the book, I did a series of dinners that I called the Badass Babes Dinners because the women who came and sat at my table were badass babes. They were the kind of women that you would want to surround yourself with. And it's funny telling you this story now about a series of dinners I did when we've been in quarantine for a year and I have had no one at my dinner table (laughs) in a year. And I'm thinking about these dinners so wistfully right now. But the dinners started out, I said to myself, great, I want to interview. I want to be on the inside of a series of conversations with millennial women. So I invited one young woman and I said, bring a friend and a friend, bring a friend and a friend. And I ended up with six or eight women around my table and I served fancy frozen pizza and many bottles of rosé and a killer cheese plate. I make a killer cheese plate. And I started out saying, I want to talk about relationships and sex. And we talked about relationships and sex for about five minutes. And then the entire rest of the conversation was about ambition and work and the dreams they had for themselves and the ways in which they felt they were falling short of those dreams and this pressure to be perfect and toxic bosses and sabotaging coworkers. And at the end of the first dinner, I was like, "Woo, I need to do this again. And so I did. I did it again and again. I did two dozen dinners over the course of reporting the book. And the dinners turned into such an amazing thing that I created a community because I wanted the women at dinner one and dinner eight to be able to know each other. And then they invited their friends. And then the dinners turned into a nationwide sort of event series that I did as part of the promotion for the book. So basically, I really enjoyed dinner and I figured out how to build an entire campaign and series and and career, a career moment around having wonderful women around my table and eating pizza. Well, this all goes back to the American Lawyer magazine, right? It's the multi-hyphenated... Multi-platform. Yeah, multi-platform. So is New Power Media basically badass babes 2.0? It really is. If you look at my LinkedIn page, it might not exactly make sense how one job or career opportunity move to the next. But the through line in all of them is what do I need to do to help women step into their power and not only make them recognize that they are powerful, but let the world see it too. The world needs to see young women, women, women of color as powerful. And as I was on this media tour and speaking tour across the country, I realized that what we were talking about was not just something that millennial women were leading, that this was something that women of all ages wanted, and that there was a new dynamic of power that we wanted to see come to fruition, one that didn't look the way things have traditionally been. We, they wanted power that was diverse and transparent and collaborative. So that was why I built new power media was to connect companies that would support this idea of power with the next generation of leaders. And 
it was and is still my driving force to usher in this new dynamic of power. But let me tell you, this last year has shown the world that this is what we need, that transparency. We're all seeing into each other's lives. There's no hiding. There's no closed door meetings anymore. We are seeing into each other's lives. There's no, when I was coming up in the world, when I was pregnant or when I had kids, I would like put it on my calendar, like out of office. Now everybody, you see other everybody's kids, right? You see everybody's life. There is no hiding. This idea of collaboration over competition, that has been the only thing that has saved us this year is that teams need to figure out how to collaborate when they're not in the same room together. Mm-hmm. And diversity above all else, we have proven that the status quo, the default of white, male, straight, was not working, is not working. And that there is a richness that needs to step into positions of power that we also need to see as powerful. When I'm listening to you, you have such clarity on your whole journey, which is wonderful. And you're so evidently confident. How would you recommend someone who isn't so clear on their mission, who isn't clear on their purpose, who isn't feeling confident to sort of tap into that? To me, again, it all comes back to your squad and your community that you need to surround yourself with people who see the world the way you do and who are devoted to helping you sort out whatever it is you're going through to help you. Maybe it is holding your hand. Maybe it is putting one foot in front of the other. Maybe it is someone who needs to give you a pep talk before a big meeting. The key, very often when I say that, right, when I tell young women that their community is the key to their success. They will say, well, how do I find these people? I was just going to ask. Yep. And the truth is that you have to show up for other people if you want them to show up for you. All the times that you blow off whatever's important to your friends, you say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm exhausted. I'm not going out. That's you not showing up to something that's important to someone else. And it's effort and it's work to try to curate those connections with people. Um, there was a year when my word of the year was deeper, and it was really important for me to deepen the relationships with some key stakeholders in my life. And I worked really hard to be there when they needed me to show up to their events, to celebrate their wins. And it was really rewarding for me in the end um, to have the strength of those relationships and the stability of those relationships. And so I mean, it could start as simply as finding a woman who you think is doing something amazing. And they're really, I feel like everybody is starting a Facebook group or starting a side hustle or a networking thing. And if you say to someone, like, that's amazing. How can I help you? How can I support you? That person is not going to say like, no, thank you. I don't need your support. <laughs> They're going to invite you to the next time they do a virtual event or tell you that they would love for you to be part of their book club or whatever the thing is, right? That is the way that you create these bonds. And so I mean, I'm confident here telling you these stories, but there are plenty of times where I need my sisterhood and my squad to work through really complicated, really vulnerable moments. And I need them because there is no growth without those complicated, complex, vulnerable moments. There is no career growth. There is no personal growth. I have learned to be a little bit afraid, confident that I can figure it out but a little bit afraid that the thing I'm taking on is big. But you do it anyway. Because what's the downside? Well, <laughs> That's no, the way but, I see it. But pushing through the fear or the intimidation of thinking like this is really big. It's like sink or swim kind of project where you're just like, I'm putting a lot into this, but you're still doing it. You know, it's funny. I hear you on sink or swim, but it's the sink that I object to. I think it would be great if this was a swim. If it turns out it's a sink, okay, we won't do that again next time. Like, I just think life is not a straight line and it's much more interesting when you're looking around the corners. Mm -hmm. This does not mean that I don't have these moments where my head is in my hands and it's four o'clock in the morning and I'm up agonizing over probably something small or something that didn't work out. 
being confident is not not feeling it. It's mm-hmm. feeling it. I feel all of the trepidation and the fear. But I also think that the only way out is through and that you have to trust in yourself to figure it out. What's a typical day in your life like? What is a typical day in anybody's life like now? Oh, my goodness. You you open your computer. (laughs) I mean, there's a straight line from, right, there's a straight line from bed to the computer that is derailed by two cups of coffee. How much coffee do you drink? I drink one cup of coffee, right? So my husband brings me my first cup hot in bed. If he doesn't bring it, I'm like, are we in a fight? Um, (laughs) So he brings that. And then I'll usually have like another half a cup or maybe like an iced coffee, like everything before pretty much 11 a.m. I love that you put coffee right up front with the podcast, right? In the intro for the podcast that you've got your cup of coffee as your logo with the lipstick. I wore a little red lipstick for you today. You're so cute. Well, that's what I stare at every day because I prefer a to-go cup over a mug historically, like at work back in the day. So I would just look down. It would be the white cup with the red lips every day. And that's... Do you still, do you do a to-go cup at home? Um, I have a porcelain to-go cup, like a porcelain with like a rubber top. But no, I do more mugs, but also, you know, home is just... Whatever dish is clean at this point, because if I have to unload the dishwasher one more time. I'll tell you, despite the fact that my husband is working at home, my kids are doing remote school at home, um, we've all cordoned off little tiny corners of the apartment that we can work in and have our own little space. And it has been tremendously disruptive and weird. I'm very grateful for two things. I'm deeply grateful to have my family here around me. I really like it, actually, Um, despite the fact that I would really like some more alone time and some quiet. I love having the family close. I do, too. I really, It really is nice. And the other thing that I have learned how to do during quarantine is cook. I was one of those people. I used to tell a joke when I was talking about the pizza dinners that I used to give because I couldn't cook. So I would heat up frozen pizza. I didn't even make pizza. I heated up frozen pizza. And so frankly, in the early days of the pandemic, it was the thing that kept me grounded, right? I had a recipe to follow and I couldn't screw it up. And if I did really, the stakes were pretty low. And (laughs) it was somebody really instructing me what to do during those days where I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I've actually turned out to be quite a good cook. I love to eat and I love flavor. So I still really stick to a recipe. I try not to freelance too much. <laughs> freelance is a good one. I learned how to cook also. So I historically let my fingers do the walking, but I did learn how to cook. Although no one in my house really wants to eat what I make. So I kind of just make it for myself and they just, I just get them prepared foods. <laughs> It's a lot, right? It's a lot. They're just not open-minded to my um, my skills. What do you think is the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome in your career, and how did you overcome it? This is a complicated question. Especially after frozen pizza, totally. My, my segue <laughs> was horrible. Uh, let's see. Part of my outlook on life is there is change that needs to be made, and I need to convince you or show you that there is big change to come. And to figure out how to convince other people to see the world the way I do has really been kind of a fun challenge, but one of the trademarks of my career. Um, Just yesterday, I was in conversation with a leadership coach and I was telling her, what do I do where I am on a mission to create and to celebrate and to elevate women who see a new dynamic of power? And there are people who don't see us as powerful. And she said, instead of trying to convince them, stop. Just gather your tribe and bring the people around you who see the world the way you do. You're not going to convince anybody of anything, particularly if it's not to their benefit. Mm -hmm. And that was so eye-opening to me. (laughs) And really, suddenly removed so many barriers, right? That it is not my job to convince you that we need a new dynamic of power that is diverse and transparent and accountable and collaborative. Instead, I'm just going to pull together 
the women and the communities that see the world this way and want to usher in the new power and to bring in the partners, right? To bring in the corporate partners that want this new dynamic of power working for them, um, that want to have these new thought leaders leading their teams. So that really changed my thinking about the challenges that we face. So now my challenge is to bring together women who see the world the way I do. And how do you see the world? And what is the new power? By the way, because, you know, it's funny. Kelly Rutherford did my podcast a couple months ago, and she was really very adamant and clear about the fact that, like, we have always been powerful. We are powerful. She really is sort of the anti-female empowerment because she thinks that makes women think that they aren't. The ways in which women are diminished and dismissed for fashion, for beauty, right? The ways that we are sidelined or told like, oh, that's cute. When I became editor-in-chief of Seventeen, of a global brand, there were so many people who said to me, oh, you and that girl magazine. Oh, that's cute. Oh, that's nice. I was like, this is not nice. This is business. <laughs> the same thing happened. I felt the same way when we were watching the rise of the YouTube star. People would say, oh yeah, like that, they don't understand the YouTube thing they didn't understand. I was like, these influencers have so many followers, have so much money, have so much power. For you not to see it means that you are making yourself irrelevant. So I see the world as opportunity and possibility and adventure. That's the way I have an outlook from my corner of the world that when I'm thinking about what do I want to do? What is the legacy that I want to leave, particularly for women in business, right? I want you to see the world as possibility, to see yourself as possible. Um, new power is about feeling powerful, about finding power, not in this one leader, but in the collective, in the community. It's about diversity. It's about transparency. It's about accountability for our leaders, and it's about making change and not holding to a status quo that doesn't work for us anymore. Well, that certainly resonates with me. You haven't followed the status quo, right? Like you have built a career that doesn't look like what a generation before you could have imagined, right? It probably doesn't even look like what you imagined. You know, that's the whole thing. I never imagined. So my big goal was to work in a magazine. That's what I wanted to do when I decided I didn't want to be a doctor. And I did that. And then I decided I want to move into PR. And I did that. And then a book got handed to me. So I did that. And then an idea for a podcast got handed to me. So I did that. So I feel like I don't even think of it as like I can take credit for it in a way because I feel like it wasn't this big strategy. Do you know what I mean? Like I kind of just go with the flow. But that goes back to the beginning. I feel like someone needs to read you your bio intro. Someone needs to like <laughs> remind you of all of the things that you did. So you can say, instead of like, oh, I did that. You can say, yes, I did that. When I met you the very first time, I remember being very nervous. It was when I was at 17 and you were at DKNY and you had just like just revealed that you were a DKNY PR girl. And oh, wow. I wasn't even sure if we were allowed to say that we knew, like it was such a secret. And we were at a fancy lady lunch. It was very well lit. And I'm sure there were like lovely appetizers. But I remember thinking to myself, I was nervous, right? I was nervous to meet you. You had done something that no one else had done. And you had built up this online presence and you'd been such a pioneer in that space. And you just breezed into lunch, sat down, and we started talking about core fusion. And it was, <laughs> and you were so warm and not shady or secretive. And even eventually, like uh, maybe by the second iced tea, we came around to saying like, you were like, yes, I have just revealed myself as DKNY PR girl. And you were so gracious about it, right? And we had all these questions. I just remember being so inspired by you that you had been Aww. such a pioneer in that way. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I love that story. You know, listen, I think because I'm always looking at the next thing, I, I really don't 
stay too much. You know, you'll relate to this 100%. Like, I grew up with you're only as good as your last credit, right? Like, you have the cover of a magazine. Next day, cover's already out. It's done. What's your next trick? You dress someone for the Oscars. Next day, it's over. What's your next trick? I'm always looking ahead. It keeps now you it's fresh. Like, it keeps you fresh, yeah. And, you know, I'm focused on consulting and sort of straddling, like, the day job with the creative side. And maybe one of those will win out in the end. Who knows? But I don't even really care. It's, like, it's kind of fun to do a bunch of different things. I mean, you've always – we spoke about this in the beginning before we started. But, like, it's this whole jungle gym mentality of having, like, a lot of different areas in your career to tap into and to sort of have these different paths and these different networks of people to tap into. And actually, I just want you to explain a little bit about what the list is and why you acquired it, because people don't know what that is. The list is having a moment very much like DKNYPR girl had, where it's having its sort of coming out. I've been a member of the list for the last five years, and I used to call it my secret lady list and sort of gave it a wink, right? Like I knew a secret that nobody else knew. I was tapped into these amazing powerhouse women. And it is such an impressive community. It just, as you said at the top of the show, it is Pulitzer Prize winners and trailblazing CEOs and every single thought leader in the women's space that you can imagine. In fact, I remember also being very intimidated when I came into that community for the first time, feeling like, how am I going to wade in here? Wow, this is a big group. Over five years being a member, I really became trusted and I trusted the group in a really important way. And when I started to realize that the list could be an important part of New Power Media, that it is the thought leaders and it's the audience when you're planning an event. Um, the community itself is really rich and connected to each other. And it's funny. I think that community is the future of media. All of the ways in which I have thought about media over the years, yes, for, of course, I think about multi-platform, right? What's the podcast? What's the television show? What's the book angle? But I also feel like when you're talking to one person, you know, when I was at 17, I felt like we were a community. I felt like we were friends. I never felt like I was the big sister or the know-it-all aunt. I felt like we were friends. And I saw those young women as part of a community. The women who the big life resonated with, the badass babes, they are a community. And the list is a community. And to have such a devoted network, a devoted group, that's the core of media. That's what you want, right? When you're trying to do marketing, you know you don't need mass. You want targeted. And that's how I think about the list as a media business. When I think of it as a community that I am a part of, I am so grateful for the women who are there, and I know they are grateful for each other. The conversations that we have range from really nuts and bolts, like who has a videographer that I can use on Friday, to really complicated questions about the intersection of power and success and life, and now COVID and democracy. <laughs> we cover <laughs> We cover it all. And often in the same breath, right? Today, we were all cooing over one woman's adorable puppy. And the next, we were talking about impeachment trials. So to me, that is the core of what a media business should be. And I'm honored to move the list into the next phase of its life. It was founded 10 years ago when digital communities of women were unheard of by two journalists, uh, Rachel Sklar and Glynis McNichol, who over 10 years, you know, really built a beautiful community of women. And so I'm so grateful to be able to help the list move into its next phase, to see it as a stronger business. I can't think of a better person to lead it. I mean, Rachel and Glynis are amazing, but I think that they chose the perfect person to pass the baton to in you. Thank you. So last question. How do you want to leave your mark? It is my mission in life to help women recognize their power and to make 
the world recognize it too. And so if I could leave any mark, it would be for women to know that they are powerful and that they have greater possibility in the world and that they are not diminished or dismissed or sidelined or talked over, that they are respected and celebrated and elevated. And how do you translate that into your parenting for your daughter? (laughs) So I have a son and a daughter, um, both elementary school age. And we talk about feminism. We talk about politics. We talk about the ways in which the world is unfair. Um, They both get the lessons. And what is amazing to me about having a boy and a girl is to watch them become great friends and supportive of each other. And frankly, like, I'm so grateful that they have each other during COVID, (laughs) which has been a really complicated time for them. But to have a son and a daughter and to really have the opportunity to show them the world in the same way, which is not to say I'm perfect. I mean, my goodness, like, we have Barbies. <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we have, my daughter has Barbies. Well, you know, Barbie has a girlfriend now in case you missed that. Oh, that I did. Press release. Yeah. She does? Great. Yeah. So great. Yeah. We have mermaid Barbie and unicorn Barbie. And we also have, I mean, my son is obsessed with uh, Minecraft and Roblox, although my daughter's obsessed with it too. Um, we really work hard to not lock them into gender, sure, old-fashioned gender dynamics. But at the same time, we don't work that hard to like break them of things that they're gravitating towards either. Um, I tell them that they have the opportunity to be powerful in the world and that the reason that I do the work I do is so that the world will be better and stronger for them. Oh, I just got chills. Well, that is the perfect way to end. And such a pleasure to talk to you always. You've done some incredible things throughout your career. And I can't wait to see what you do with New Power Media and The List and probably a lot of other platforms that are brewing inside your head right now. So thanks for coming on Leave Your Mark. Thank you. I loved it. You are a fantastic interviewer. This was the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for the record, listeners, I do not share my questions in advance, so we like to have fresh answers. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Lickdexo. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licked. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.